0: Episode 283, Your Telehealth Success May Be a Launchpad for Health System Innovation and Human-Centered Healthcare. Today, I speak with Sylvia Rahm, MD, MPH, Chief Innovation Officer at Atlantic Health System. American Healthcare Entrepreneurs and Executives You Want to Know, talking Relentlessly seeking value. At the end of the day, healthcare should be about helping patients find their way to health, while doctors, nurses, and other clinicians don't burn out in the process. It's becoming increasingly indisputable that the way to get to this North Star efficiently is through human centered healthcare. Human centered healthcare is a term coined by Dr. Sylvia Rahm, and it's a play on the term customer centered design. How do we innovate? How do we use technology to intensify the human experience for both provider and patient? How do we rid ourselves of friction points and create a continuum of care that is sticky and makes getting healthy as enjoyable as Instagram? Today, I speak with Sylvia Ram. She's an MD and an MPH with a background as a researcher and a telemedicine entrepreneur prior to coming to Atlantic Health System as their chief innovation officer. We talk today about human centered healthcare, what this means, what the success factors are and how to make it happen. We also take into account the assorted challenges to overcome on the way there. This interview was recorded moments before COVID-19 and I say that as a good thing. Dr. Ram brings up telehealth as let's just say a first step toward actuating human centered design in healthcare. Clearly in the past that was quite a hurdle, no longer. So those health systems or you other stakeholders in the mix who have gotten the telehealth thing nailed, listen on for ways that you can leverage your success. And for those of you who haven't, well, here's a little extra motivation. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Sylvia Rahm, MD, MPH, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you for having me. With your background in research, public policy, as well as being a pediatric hospitalist, how do those three intertwine? Like, how does it add up to a really good innovation strategy?
1: It's not uncommon for people who are, are physicians who, are, who might be other practitioners who are, who are providing care to kind of feel like what the patient does at home is not my responsibility. And so I will try my best to have my patient understand what they need to do while they are with me. But if they don't do it when they go home, you know, we talk about things like them being non-compliant. And it's kind of this idea that I'm responsible for this one-on-one interaction, but when, this one-on-one interaction is over, then then it is their responsibility to be able to figure out all of those other pieces. Now, from a public health standpoint, it's really the opposite. It's really the idea of how do we look at populations and how do we help populations be healthier with either regulatory or maybe clinical guidelines, but it's really about affecting the system in its entirety. And so I think that... Both of those views and and really having deep interest in both of them, when they came into conflict, when I was practicing as a physician and I felt like I didn't have the supports to be able to take care of my patients outside of my four walls, I felt like there was something missing and I really wanted to bridge that gap. And that's where technology has worked so well in other areas of our life. One could say, you know, for better or for worse... Technology has allowed other industries to really integrate themselves into the fabric of our lives. You have your phone with you all the time. So the people that created your phone, the people that created the software that you use most often have really become a part of your day to day in a way that we haven't historically done in healthcare, and I think can offer a lot of advantages. One of the things
0: that you have focused on extensively is the whole idea of this human centered healthcare. Well, first of all, what does that mean? And then I'm going to ask you a question connecting the dots between what you just said about iPhones <laughs> and human centered healthcare. But first things first, what do we mean by that term?
1: I've taken the term human centered healthcare, actually modifying it from another term that you may have heard called human centered design. And that's a process that I was exposed to when I was at American Well, which is a telemedicine company, but it's essentially a consumer tech company. We had a technology that was consumer facing, so that was patient facing. And when I joined the team, I started interacting with people who did uh, user experience and user interface design And I didn't even know the terminology that people were using. I didn't understand the process that they were doing. But I saw that what they would do is they would take a feature or take something and go out and rigorously test it with the people who are going to use it. And this is where my research background comes in as well. That really resonated with me that you can take something that is as simple as we would like somebody to do this thing on the software and we're going to test different colors and we're going to test different wording on the software. And in these rapid tests, we're going to figure out how we can allow people to feel most comfortable progressing in this software to get to some point. All of this really resonated with me that we should be in all areas of medicine, not just not just in software, really trying to understand what motivates people, what they like, and what makes them feel comfortable. Because in the end, as a clinician, as somebody in healthcare, you're only as effective as the rapport that you build with the person you're in this healthcare relationship with. Because you can be the smartest person in the world... And especially if there's anything that requires behavior change, which means, you know, taking medications or changing your diet or changing your exercise, anything that's around a lot of the chronic conditions and primary care. You really have to build that relationship and and move along that relationship together, understanding the nuances of that and understanding how you can help people really feel their best in that environment.
0: So the idea here with human centered healthcare is technology companies have let's just say made amazing strides in Doing enough research and testing to figure out what would make their customer, how to make it sticky effectively, how to use it more, how to get them comfortable enough to use it. So transposing that into healthcare, how do you get a patient in this particular case comfortable enough with the healthcare delivery system, do I want to say system, process, experience maybe that the healthcare experience almost becomes sticky in a certain way. The patients become comfortable with it and then they're able to adapt to it and engage with it and get the best results, therefore. Is that the idea?
1: It is. And really, a lot of this is around what do people really need? What makes them comfortable? But also, what do they find valuable? How do people like to be treated? There are a lot of these different things that We use pretty rudimentary tools in most of healthcare to try to understand that. For example, when you look at surveys of what patients want in terms of digital tools, they'll often be very large-scale annual surveys that talk about features and functionality, whereas true human-centered design, you're going to be iterating maybe even hundreds of times a day (laughs) in trying to understand exactly what people want and changing little things here there just to create a much better experience. And so it's entirely different ways of thinking and it's entirely different tools.
0: If we're talking about the term that you coined, which is human-centered healthcare, one of the things that the current multitude of tech companies That maybe we could set up on a pedestal and say, for better or for worse, these guys are really good at creating tools that people get addicted to. Maybe not necessarily in the good way that we want them to get addicted to, you know, healthcare and engaging with well, let's just say health. I don't mean healthcare. (laughs) We want to get people addicted to health. But they rely very heavily on data, obviously. These tools are built on a very extensive knowledge of what that particular human in question, very individual, like almost precision like, we're doing the comparison to healthcare. It's like almost like precision medicine, except for what time of day should I serve up these ads. How are we folding data into the human centered healthcare approach that you envision?
1: That's also something that historically we haven't done. And it's something that health systems are still really trying to figure out how to use. There are a few major surveys that health systems have really indexed on to improve their patient experience. And these are, you'll hear them a lot, HCAPS and Prescani. They are good for what they are measuring, but they are not intended to measure a digital patient experience to any level of granularity. And so we can't rely on them moving forward when we think about how we look at the digital experience the people who are trying to interact with us have. The tools that we need really aren't built in in any substantial way to the traditional healthcare IT tools like EHRs. I've found that there are some health systems that are building tools on top of things like patient portals to be able to understand with more specificity what people are doing in order to give them a better experience. For example, if you are trying to look up something about your health and it's important to you and it's important enough that you're you're going through the trouble of going into your portal to find your data, making that a better and easier experience is something that is very important for someone's well-being. If we are, for example serving up information that could be scary without any explanation. If we are making it difficult for people to be able to communicate with the people that they need to, for example, their care team, or if we make it difficult for them to find out what they need to know, then we are not helping them reach what they need in order to be healthy.
0: So the idea there is to get enough metrics From the digital, the existing digital tools to try to understand what the journey is through the digital environment that currently exists to identify the sticking points there? Like what's your end game?
1: Exactly. The end game is to figure out really how to have a better experience. For example, one of the greatest areas of complaints that we have is around billing. In billing and collecting in the hospital. Now we know that a relatively low proportion of our patients use their online portal. And on that online portal, we do have some billing capabilities, but of the smaller proportion that use the portal, only a smaller proportion of that use the online billing. But we don't really have good data on why, and we don't have data on why that would be a better experience. If they do wanna see their bill online, then why aren't they doing that? And so I think we're just hitting that point in the conversation. And
0: how do you see all this adding up to the quadruple aim? How does this fit into the larger context of providing patients with high-value healthcare and making sure that physicians and other frontline care providers, advanced practice clinicians aren't burning out in the process?
1: So when I think about human-centered healthcare, I look at that on both sides of the equation. So it's not just the people who are coming in and seeking care, but also the people who are providing care. We have an epidemic of burnout. I think that you know the last Medscape report said that 44% of physicians report that they feel burned out. And a lot of people are pointing to the electronic health records and the number of administrative tasks that come from electronic health records as one reason for that. And I think there has been a movement that saying that technology is bad for healthcare and causes burnout. But I think there's a counter movement, which is really that it's not just tech, Technology in general. It's that the specific technology that we've used and that we've implemented widely was not actually implemented to make the human interaction of medicine easier. It was there to measure. It was there to help with billing and coding. It was there for regulatory reasons. But very little of it was around asking people who are using it, does this make your experience of practicing medicine or receiving healthcare better? And so, of course, if you don't ask those questions when you design something, then you're not going to get to those answers in in the final product. And so when we look at how technology has been used, there's a new wave that's really about understanding how we can use newer technologies to be able to reduce the burden on people who are providing care and really bring medicine back to that human interaction which so many people really enjoy. For example, as physicians, we have far more data than we know what to do with. If you start talking about wearable data, then we really have no capacity to understand how we can be analyzing this constant stream of information that could potentially be coming in from people. But the newer companies that are using, for example, machine learning or other forms of artificial intelligence to turn that raw data into something that is meaningful for people who are trying to deliver care can potentially help bring down some of those administrative tasks and and reduce that burnout.
0: So when you say human-centered healthcare, do you mean there's a bunch of humans in this equation here? One of them is the patient, but then another one are the clinicians that are involved. Are they all under the umbrella of human or do you mainly mean the patient?
1: Oh, no, I actually mean both sides. There are humans on all sides of this equation. And so when we design this technology, are we designing it in a way that it helps the humans out who are using it? Or designing it to you know, maybe support some other aims or means within the organization.
0: Where I see there could be a, I don't want to use the word conflict, where I see that there could be somewhat of a difficulty is in the sense that you had been talking about the promise of some of these new technologies, which are more human-centered and enable process vis-a-vis AI wearable data and presented in a human-centered way versus this million-billion-dollar legacy systems earlier, we were talking about EHR systems and patient portals, which are definitely part of these legacy systems. They were built for billing and coding. As you just said, they are not necessarily human-centered, but yet they exist. It must be very difficult in the position that you have to kind of reconcile, we've got all this legacy stuff, but yet if I was going to start again, I might not be using these systems.
1: It is actually a really difficult thing to manage. There ends up being a reticence to do anything outside of them. And yet, when you look at these much more nimble organizations that are starting to deliver care outside of the health systems, these are startups, these are our companies like... Amazon or Walmart, they're not under the same restrictions that we are. And that's giving them a lot of freedom and flexibility to offer solutions that people honestly really enjoy. So how do we think about that as incumbents and how do we allow ourselves to continue to Maintain the consistency and quality that we want to as a large, high quality organization, and also realize that we are going to have to earn and learn agility on one end to really be able to compete in these areas. It almost sounded like from what you said
0: earlier, you've almost got two streams of action going on. One thing that you said that you're doing is collecting metrics off of these legacy systems. So how are people using the patient portal and how are people using the EHR system and determining whether there were bottlenecks or areas of consternation relative to those particular legacy systems? But then at the same time, trying to figure out what else is out there that may be either a longer term play or maybe a separate kind of play. Because I'm imagining that what you're collecting off of the patient portal, for example, may not necessarily give you all of the insight that you might need. If you put a patient in an environment that may not necessarily be the most, let's just say, user-friendly, and then you're kind of collecting data in that environment versus really getting back to the research root of it all and saying, you know, how does this person live their life? And I'm going to construct this specifically for them. Like, You're almost getting two sets of information there.
1: Absolutely, and it's something that I think about is my role of chief innovation officer. Part of the reason I am at Atlantic is so that I can continue to look at organizations who are really functioning on what we call the edge of our business. For example, tech-enabled primary care, and one medical just went public. They, when they released their S1, which is a public filing that they have to do, there was a lot of information in there that was really interesting. For example, one of the metrics that they, had in there was that their monthly active users of their app was in the high 40s. So somewhere around 47 percent of members or patients of One Medical were interacting digitally with them every month. Now, what's fascinating about health systems is that We tend to do our statistics in terms of yearly active users of our our portal and very, very, very few health systems have even 47% of their patients interacting yearly with their patient portal. So you see this and you're trying to compete. On the other hand, you wonder if they're just playing a completely different game. And what does that mean for us as we move forward?
0: You know, one of the things that strikes me with this, if we're talking about the visit itself, the relationship between a physician and the patient, what do you think the different ways and, you know, maybe One Medical is onto something because people are using the app in this way. I'm I actually go to One Medical. I don't know why people would go on the app once a month, but that aside, what do you think has the most promise to really deepen the connection between patients and their providers?
1: I think about this a lot because I work a lot in this world of digital healthcare delivery, and there are many, many, many fantastic physicians, and and I primarily speak with physicians, so I'm going to have that sample bias there, that are really forward-thinking, and also say, look, I just can't build a relationship with somebody if I don't see them in person. And what I always try to challenge people to think about is, is this about you? And how do we know that's how people outside feel about creating a relationship, especially younger people, but also older people create relationships in all sorts of different ways now. The way that I think about it is imagine if you had a friend that said, look, I really love being your friend, but I will only interact with you if you see me in person. And it's not just seeing me in person. You have to come see me. So you're a really great friend, but you have to come to my house and see me in person if you ever have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'll be there for you. I think I would probably say, even as much as I enjoy time out with that friend, I would probably say, you know what? I think I'm looking for friends who have a little bit more flexibility in how they want to interact with me to really maintain a, a strong friendship. And it's so true in many other areas as well that there are plenty of people who want to come in and see their physician in person. There are some people who might even want to do that regularly. And for physicians who only see people in person, there is a selection bias for those types of people. So they might say, look, I don't have evidence that my patients want to see me in any other way. And what I will often say is because those people who don't want to interact with the type of healthcare that we've given them have stopped interacting with the system. And you see them dropping off and not maintaining continuous relationships with people in healthcare. Because of that, the people who are primary care docs don't know that they exist in a way because they're not monitoring the population as a whole. And then people start saying things like, oh, millennials, they don't want to have relationships anymore. They only want to go to an urgent care center or maybe have a telemedicine visit. In my experience in practicing telemedicine, it is not that people weren't grateful or didn't want to build that rapport with me. And in fact, often what I heard was that they were incredibly grateful that they were able to talk to somebody in a time of need without having to interact with all the craziness of the healthcare system. There are many people who want to see me or other physicians I know repeatedly through telemedicine and really create that relationship. It's just that traditional healthcare only offers one color of car and then says, well, hey, if you don't want this color of car, then you can't shop here. But by the way, 100% of the people who shop here only want this one color of car. So nobody else must want anything else. And it's this interesting circular logic.
0: And I can definitely see that it would be an easy trap to fall prey to because I'm sure there's some sort of behavioral economic bias that indicates. It's the availability bias. Look, I even thought of it. And okay, so I'm inferring from what you just said that that one of your aims is to enable relationships that don't necessarily require the patient to get in their car and drive to campus and park and get out and find the room and wait there and see the physician. And what do you feel like has the most promise for furthering that relationship or creating a relationship outside of, let's just say, the four walls of the hospital? And you keep saying telemedicine. So I'm assuming it's something with telemedicine.
1: You know, I take that agile mentality forward, though. I don't think there is a bet, honestly. I think that we should have lots of different models out there and that different people are going to like different things. People are going to continuously want to change what they like. And as new technologies are implemented, as people change the way that they interact with the rest of the world, then that's going to change. And so by definition, we need to have a variety of different options out there so that we can, one, figure out which ones might be popular that we didn't know about but too that we can continue to grow as people's needs grow and, and what we can offer grows.
0: And is the plan there, do you think, to offer up various options, kind of trial and error, like offer something, see how well it's adopted, offer something else. Now you've got three options for patients to choose from, maybe get rid of the least popular one, add another one. Is that the way to
1: iterate? Absolutely. So, you know, I was just talking to a gastroenterology practice, and one of their practice managers had started doing video visits in the morning. And this is just one example of this iterative mentality that you very rarely see. And he said that he first started out with the physicians doing video visits throughout the course of the day, really messed up with their workflow. And then he thought, well, He would do it after lunch, but it turns out that their mornings would run over. And so they were often late to the lunchtime visits. And after over a period of a few weeks, he realized that for most of the physicians, scheduling a few video visits in the morning was the best way to have them set up. So both the physicians and the patients had a good experience, but that was only true for four of the five physicians. For the fifth one, setting it up at the end of the day was the best. And so that's what he did. And it was really great that he really did this experimental type of service because the culture of healthcare is that what they would have done is they would have had committees set up for weeks beforehand trying to predict what would be the best time to do these visits. And then then they would have, you know, a few meetings. They might bring in a few extra people, a bunch of people would want to weigh in, they would have some sort of consensus, and then they would decide this is when the video visits would happen. And then when they, after they launched it, it would be done because they had spent all this time and energy coming to that initial decision. And so they didn't want to go through that entire process again. And so whatever it was is what it was. And people had to work their way around it. That, that would have been a sort of typical um, decision-making process. And so this practice manager just it really took it all upon himself. I mean, it's a small practice. And so he had that flexibility. But he really was able to experiment and iterate and got some great services going that people really liked.
0: Do you think that's a workable model for a large institution, that you have smaller working groups, you kind of give them a goal, they figure it out, and then you've got smaller working groups within the whole organization that are effectively kind of doing the same thing, but maybe in a different way?
1: Yeah, it's a really, really good question. That's something that, I, that I'm that i testing out right now a little bit. And really, there's I have a lot of support figuring out how we think a little bit differently and think more agilely. But scaling that across the health system is something that, I, that I, we haven't done. And I don't know anybody who's really done that in healthcare. I think that is, is yet to be told, but I would hope so. I think so. What do you think the critical
0: success factors are? To roll out an initiative, you know, such as the things that we're talking about, which, you know, may require broad acceptance within the organization and, you know, supporting marketing, maybe some kind of rollout plan. What must be true for such initiatives to have a chance of being successful?
1: You have to have leadership buy-in from the board and CEO down. You really, really do. Not necessarily for individual initiatives, but for the mentality of we're going to try something new when this fits into our larger strategic goals. People have to understand the why. Once you have that why of why you're doing this, having a really strong communications plan is essential. And it's, and it's really, really hard. It's not an easy thing to do when you have a large organization, but it takes a lot of effort. And that the requirement of that effort means that you have to have a lot of commitment. I think that it's only really been in the last few years when you really have some of these new entrants that are coming in from outside healthcare, that sense of urgency has really been built up because previously, if your competitors were only your the health systems that were close to you, they really don't have a ton of competition. Like there are some urban areas that might have a lot, But relatively speaking, health systems have not had as as competitive environment as some other industries have had. The fact that other industries are really coming in and, you know just now starting to nibble a bit, but I would say, you know, trying to eat our lunch in a way. I think that's created a a new sense of urgency, which is good. I think it's good for the entire healthcare industry.
0: I heard two critical success factors. One of them is C-suite buy-in or board buy-in, kind of around the whole idea that we are going to innovate in order to achieve some strategic goal. The understanding that in order to achieve a strategic goal, innovation is an essential part of that. And then the other thing that you said was communication so that everybody in the organization understands the why and understands what's going on.
1: It's sort of the classic tenets of change management that really apply.
0: Maybe this is the third thing that's a critical success factor in understanding that we are nearing an inflection point and action is required, which kind of adds a little bit of maybe it's a force multiplier for the why.
1: That is correct. This is a sense of urgency that we need to do things. And this is how we're going to continue to survive and thrive as we move forward.
0: Has there been a challenge that you have been very proud to have overcome? Like has something happened yeah. where you've kind of, uh, with grace and fortitude, figured out how to address it? And when I say grace and fortitude, I mean lots of trial and error probably. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> you know, something that you felt needed to be solved, it was solved and now you're moving forward.
1: One of the things that I generally say is fantastic about being an innovation officer is I can give entire keynotes where I answer very few questions and really just ask more questions <laughs> than, than I can possibly answer. It really spark a dialogue because almost by definition, the space that I'm in is taking us into space where certainly we haven't gone before, but really not a whole lot of people have gone before. We're really working together and asking difficult questions and bringing in lots of smart minds to think about those questions is something that's essential. So to come back, I think that actually one of the things that I am most proud about in the type of work that I do is that there is an extreme sense of camaraderie between the different people in organizations all across the country and really also in different sectors of healthcare. So I've become good friends and good colleagues with some people in insurance plans and in some people who are looking in the employer market. And really bringing these people together to think about problems in the same way. Because I think we all recognize that there is a lot of improvement that can be had in our healthcare system, not health system, but like in healthcare writ large. And the fact that we're all working together and, and looking in the same direction is really momentous. And it's a, it's a really big deal. And so I'm really proud of that.
0: So, secret weapon collaboration.
1: Collaboration, always.
0: <laughs> Dr. Sylvia Rahm, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value Podcast today.
1: I think this has been really fun. Thank you so much.
0: Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show